Oh my goodness me! Oh, this is absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, thanks everyone for joining us here on Around the Court Squash Podcast. My name is Arthur Gaskin and joining me here on our panel is none other than Stuart Crawford, Christopher Sackley and Peter Nichol. Stuart, uh, we'll start with you. Do you want to sort of maybe say a few words about yourself and then pass the mic? Thanks Arthur. Um, my name is Stuart Crawford, originally from Scotland, grew up playing junior squash there and played professionally, played for Scotland for a number of years coached in Scotland and I'm now coaching in the US at the U- sorry, University of Pennsylvania in the Collegiate Squash Association. Woohoo, Mr. Sackley. Yeah, um, really excited for this. Uh, I grew up in Canada playing um, in St. Catharines at White Oaks, which uh, hosts a lot, of, a lot of big events in Canada and has hosted a few international tournaments. And I played at Cornell University after my junior career and now currently am the coach at Columbia University, one of the squash coaches there, um, after coaching at a few other schools um, in between graduating. Awesome. Peter? My name is Peter Nichol. I grew up in Inverurie, Scotland, playing squash, and then moved to Yorkshire and then London and then now in New York City. Uh, as a coach, so I played professionally for a number of years and then coached now for a number of years. So I'm too old to even mention how old I am and how long I've done both of those things. But yeah, love the game. Excited about talking about the game with these three Muppets and going from there. <laughs> what about your playing career? You had a pretty decent playing career. <laughs> I think so. The ones, the, the parts I can remember. I always remember the losses. So yeah, no, I played okay. I did well. I got to number one in the world for a few years and won a few oh, titles. So. Okay. Um, oh, easy, easy. You were asking Just about it. Number one in the world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, man, huh? Um, yeah, and, and I'm Arthur Gaskin. I played squash for a, num- for a number of years. I didn't get to world number one, not even close, but I love the game and coaching the game, and I'm super excited to be able to talk about the game with these three. I'm not going to be as harsh as Peter and call them Muppets, these three gents. All right. So, how are we doing, guys? How's COVID nineteen been going for us? Personally, I love it. <laughs> I I get to run as much as I possibly can. I get to read and listen to other podcasts and catching up on about ten years of missed TV. So, I'm fine with it. And most and most importantly, sure, not talk to anyone right now of any human interaction. It's perfect. Exactly. I mean, if there was ever a global pandemic that I was designed for, as this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife says the same. She's kind of not much has changed in her life except for she sees me way more. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. It depends yeah. on the day. To be determined. <laughs> we'll see what it's like at the other end. Eh? So what's been happening in the squash world? Stuart, do you want to take a lead there? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been very noticeable is just the amount of great content that's been put out. I think PSA in particular have led the way with articles, with interviews with top players and some of the social media stuff that they've been putting out, whether it's trick shots or people finding creative ways to keep hitting squash balls against random walls out in parks or in their apartments. So I've been actually really impressed with how much squash content there's been, given that there's no actual squash taking place. Um, I think Squash Skills is another platform that's done a great job of adapting and putting out pretty relevant content to the current situation. 
the number of players sharing online workouts, whether it's through YouTube or Instagram. Again, it's been really interesting. I've actually tried a couple myself. How's that going? Pretty tough. Like, like I said, I'm more of a runner these days, so anything that involves a lunge or a squat gets me in trouble big time. Good thing you don't need to lunge on court, eh? Exactly. I mean, my squash <laughs> days are long gone. So. The one thing I will say, actually, is even I'm missing playing squash, and I never play squash these days. <laughs> that, says a, that says a lot. It does. <laughs> Um, I actually feel like I'm playing more squash now than I was. I'm starting to do more movement, squash movement, than I've been doing with the coaching. Yeah. I mean, I did your online workout a couple of weeks ago, Peter, and my glutes were hurting for a few days with that ghosting. And, um, yeah, so... Agreed. Yeah, I've been really impressed with the way people have adapted. And one of the, favorite, the best things I've seen recently is the, the show that Daryl Selby and Nick Matthew have done the last couple of weeks with... But yesterday they put out an episode with hey, no, no free advertisement. <laughs> I mean, I would say it's probably going to be the second best squash podcast slash show in the, the world once we're out there. There we go. There we go. Yeah, they've got a high ceiling. Yeah. Not 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 number one, but I think one of the things that you mentioned, Stuart, about the especially with the PSA doing such a good job, they have this like hashtag, I think it's no course, no problem. And so anyone from the club player to juniors to PSA players, I mean, two girls here from Providence, Darcy and Ainsley Weber, they had a couple of crash helmets on, put a blue line on their garage door and were wallying back and forth to each other. And so when they posted that in one of their like montages of videos, they got a nice little kick out of it. And I think it's just a great example of how, you know, they've managed to keep everyone connected and, and feel like they're part of something. And I think that's been a pretty powerful message from the PSA. Um, yeah. I think from a from a slightly serious point of view, it's like it's great how much the community is coming together and wanting to be together during this time, right? And they're finding their comfort, their solace, and being connected through squash, which shows yeah. how much the sport means means to them. So, and it's so important right now with everything that's going on that people have things to look forward to. So, kudos to everyone that's doing a great job with that content. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things that came up on social media was. Um, May bank holiday weekend, which is in Europe, I don't think it's the same over here in the, uh, this side of the Atlantic, but they have like the European Championships and obviously it got postponed and they had uh, like a virtual uh, Europeans. And so what they did was you could like click who you think was going to win. Thanks to that process, Ireland got themselves a, a double in Division 2 and uh, men's and ladies, they've now been promoted to Division 1. Spain got a historic first European title. Uh, Wales beat England 4-0 which I would no one ever would have foreseen that. And uh, France retained the women's title. I just think personally, I'd like to thank everyone who pressed click and press refresh on the screen. Ireland got the double. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how, was, realistic would it, how realistic, Arthur, would it have been that Ireland did get promoted in both divisions? <sighs> well, as realistic as Wales beating England for nothing, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, uh, you know, I, I think there's probably a better chance of Ireland doing the double than Wales beating England 4 0, but, you know, I could be biased. <laughs> but on to the real stuff. Uh, we had some live sport on the weekend, just gone with some MMA in Florida, some baseball in Korea, some sumo wrestling, and bull riding, of all things. But long before that, on April 18th, we had the very first edition of Super Squash Saturdays in Toronto. Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's been pretty fun following along. I uh, I thought I originally didn't know it was hardball 
that kind of came out at the last minute, which was which was interesting. But and I guess probably left a lot of people a bit skeptical about you know whether it was going to be worth watching. And they really didn't disappoint with that uh, with that first match. I mean, it had a little bit of everything. Some good some good blocking, some awesome shot making, some good smack talk. Uh, Graham and Dean did an awesome job commentating and and just kind of the the story of those two um quarantining together is pretty uh pretty hilarious in itself <laughs> is that Jonathan and Diego the John yeah Jonathan so you know growing up I was really Jonathan into, who I was really into <laughs> Jonathan Power Peter Nickel rivalry oh him him got it I, yeah, you said earlier you remember your losses I think you'd remember Jonathan well right <laughs> <laughs> oh Stuart, don't you want to get back into quarantine? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and so some somehow Jonathan Power and Diego Elias are uh, are quarantining together in a in a cool house, and they've 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 been putting out some funny content. They've got a, a squat rack and you know the TRX and a bunch of equipment, and and um, Diego looks like he's maybe doing a little bit more of that stuff than Jonathan, but. Um, but <laughs> match itself uh, was taking place in an office building in, in downtown Toronto. Uh, the person that Jonathan works with and I believe uh, helps Diego, sponsors Diego, um, help put this thing together and, and get them into the office building squash court. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's been been funny to follow along. The, the YouTube comments are just flying around when uh, when the match is on, which is which is pretty funny. And overall, I think it was good until I think uh, Jonathan. Uh, I don't know if we'll see him back. I mean, he looked like he had about six different injuries after the last one. That that normally means he'll be fine by the next day. Here, <laughs> <laughs> how do you think you would handle that these days? Oh, I'd be fine. I'd only have five injuries. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. Uh, no, it just looks painful. It looks painful. Did you play any hardball when you were coming over to the States initially in, in some of those pro events? No, it, it all stopped. Um, I okay. played all the old, the hardball guys. So I played uh, Mark Talbot, uh, Anders Wallstedt. He played a bunch of hardball when he moved over, um, and a few others uh, of the, the American players who had, who had switched over to softball because it was 92, 93. Um, so no, I never got a chance to play them hardball. There were almost hard balls around, so I jump on court and hit hit around with it and struggle badly. Um, but never actually played a game with it. Yeah. Were some of the courts when you first came over were they still um, the old hardball singles? Yeah, they were the narrow ones. So you played a bunch of tournaments on the narrow courts, which is which is strange. Wow. But also great because the volley, I love volleying, so you can kind of volley everything because they're like, what was it? Was it two feet narrow or a foot and a half narrower? Whatever it was. How many? I, I thought it was about three. It's, it's like 18 three. and 21. Regular squash courts, 21 feet. And I think yeah. they were 18 or 18 and a half. Probably makes sense, yeah. So basically, it basically means you could volley everything if you wanted to. So it was great for me. I remember playing one wow. tournament in one of those narrow courts. I think it was in Virginia, like many moons ago. And it was the first time I actually hit some pretty decent cross courts. <laughs> Chipping a sidewall. <laughs> 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 So, Stuart, you joined the, the Penn coaching team with uh, Jack and Gilly this year. looked like, I mean, from the outside looking in, it looked like you guys had a pretty good season. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and, and then how you impacted both teams and kind of looking forward then for next season? 
Yeah, certainly on the men's side, we had a very successful season. We reached the final of the national championships for the first time in our history. So I was actually, the way it came about, I was living in Japan for a large part of last year. I spent about six or seven months out there last last year. And I woke up one morning to a random message from Billy Lane, who a lot of people probably know, just asking if I was interested in this position, working with him and Jack Wine, who's the director of squash at Penn. Uh, I'd left my previous job and they were aware of that. And yeah, I was instantly interested. I decided to fly over from Japan and go to Penn, meet with Jack and Gilly and spend a couple of weeks with the team. And just straight away, I knew it was the right fit. And some people might know that they've just built a brand new $90 million facility this year, 12 courts, including two all-glass courts. So we're the first college in the US to have two all-glass courts. It's really quite an impressive facility. And yeah, just the working relationship with Gilly and Jack has been great. I've really enjoyed the season with both the men's and the women's team. Um, unfortunately, I had to go back to Scotland for a couple of months and take care of my visa because it had expired. But came back on the start of January. Three days into starting the new job, our first match was Harvard away, who are ranked number one in the men's and women's college sports rankings. So that was a bit of a rude awakening. Welcome to big league. <laughs> the following week, we played Trinity, who's pretty much the second best team, certainly on the men's side. And one of the top three or four programs on the women's side. And again, we suffered a couple of losses there. But really, we grew some pretty good momentum going through the season. And men were winning a lot of historically tight matches and challenging matches. They were winning fairly comfortably. We beat Yale for the first time in a long, long time, 9 nothing. We beat Columbia, which is a big rivalry. Sorry, Chris. And yeah, we went into nationals as the number three seeds. Um, played Trinity in the semi-finals and managed to turn our 6-3 defeat in the regular season round to a 6-3 win which got us into the final and unfortunately yeah. came up against Harvard again but yeah, it, was, it was a great season the one thing I would say is that it's actually a really easy job because I think Jack and Gilly have done such a great job recruiting players that want to work hard are completely motivated and committed and working with those sort of athletes is just really quite simple and straightforward. You're just trying to guide them and make some suggestions of things they can maybe add or change in their game that can help them along the way. But once you're in the middle of that competitive season, there's really so much match time and competitive action going on that it's hard to make significant changes. So it's unfortunate that we can't work a little bit more closely with the players right now because that was really going to be our, our focus moving forward and trying to work towards next season. And so looking ahead to next season and, and put in particular focus on the men's team who finished second and climbed from three or four in the country to number two. How do you see yourselves closing the gap to Harvard and sort of putting up a real threat? I think a big part is your recruiting and the new players that you can have coming in. And I think that's one area that Gilly in particular has really excelled in over the year. I think it probably started with Andrew Douglas, who was one of the top, probably the best US junior of all time. Uh, certainly in the last 10 or 20 years, he was beating very highly ranked junior players, played world juniors, and getting him to commit to Penn was probably the first step. And then the following year, we got a couple of other uh, top players in Ali Abu Elin and James Flynn, who played number two and three. So between the three of them, that really set us up for a pretty solid foundation. And then just trying to add to that each year. But 
like I say, when you recruit players like that that are already talented and want to work hard, it makes it a lot easier. So our big thing next year, looking at how do we take down Harvard, was really just trying to develop the players that we've got because obviously once they're recruited, there's not much else you can do. But we felt pretty confident that we were only losing two of our top nine players and that was our number six and our number eight from this year. And Harvard were losing three of their top six. So I think they were losing their three, five and six. That alone can make a big difference. Um, and, and would it would it be right in saying like if you're top heavy, like if you're top couple of proofs, like you're you're Andrew Douglas, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of the other guy that you uh, that you named. If you're top heavy, then they kind of inspire like some of the players, like from five down through ten, twelve. Yeah, they inspire them in terms of their work ethic and their attitude, and also just the guys lower down get to hit with them occasionally. So we don't particularly segregate our team and have number one and two hitting together every day. So the guys further down will get on court with those guys sometimes and that brings their level up and yeah, it really works quite well. And like I say, when the guys want to work hard and I'm pretty sure most of the guys in our team would choose to be professional squash players if, if it was feasible, but they're obviously prioritizing their education at the moment and hoping Why would that, they do that. Well, yeah, I know it's a strange one. I, mean, I suppose Chris has got a I actually have a degree as well, but Chris explained in the US, but but most people just go straight in. I mean, Pierre, did you go to university or were you too busy being world number one? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I was thanks for that, sure. I was going to uh, go to university and do engineering at Aberdeen, mechanical engineering at Aberdeen University, and then took a year off and then just carried on. But I think if I had the choice, if I did have a choice now, um, because of the strength and this, and I'd love to hear both your thoughts, sure. Um, I would go to college in the States now if I if I knew about it and I had that option um, because I would want to have an education and play squash just because it's so the strength and depth is there now and you can go from playing college squash to being professional as Ali Farag has shown very clearly um, and many others. So I think for me, um, I would definitely want to go to college now in the US if I could before going pro and I probably would. But I, think I would agree with that as well. Peter, sorry to cut you there, but just, and not only that, it's like you've got access to world-class coaching, uh, no charge. You've also got physios, trainers, so, and it takes you a couple of years to get strong. And I think as well, having a support system around you, especially if you're young, like, you know, 18, 19 year old, to have like, you know, like-minded buddies around you and coaches kind of looking out for you in those like formative early years from, you know, junior life into adulthood can only be a really good thing for your sort of development. And obviously you get a, a degree at the end of it which is a bonus yeah it's and been, Chris it's, I, can you can you talk a little bit about what it was like playing college squash and the team environment and just the whole experience yeah so I was gonna say it's it's been interesting since I graduated which is about about 10 years ago to the to the week or the month so 2010 and it's been interesting to see how much college squash has evolved since then it the in terms of how much I enjoyed it, how much fun I had, uh, the group of guys and girls on the teams at Cornell when I was there, like, you know, I wouldn't, would definitely not trade it for anything. And it was so, you know, such a good experience and um, competition was great, but I wouldn't say it was exactly the best platform to go professional, you know, being in Ithaca, New York, probably having a few too many light beers over my four years wasn't exactly so your last, two, your, your last two only right when you're last two only. yeah it wasn't exactly a winning formula to uh to launch me into the into the professional stage but 
I think everything has slowly, if you look at professional sports on the whole, the PSA, um, even the NBA, you see everyone's just taking health and wellness so much more seriously. Um, I think, I think on a global stage and I think it's, and you see it in college wash, there's a lot of very, a lot of very committed players coming in as first years, knowing they want to be professional and not letting the distractions get to them quite as much as maybe, maybe people did in the two thousands and the nineties. I think that's why we're seeing more people have success on the pro tour while they're in college because they're obviously training really hard, but also have success um, after because they're they're improving quite a bit over their four years. And as Arthur said, I think the level of coaching's gone up. You know, schools are adding more resources, which is cool. So you know, like Stuart, myself, we're we're um, we have three coaches on our staff. And so we, we, we can commit quite a bit of time to, to everything, the organization, the one-on-ones, the training. So it is, it is it's a cool system. If only we were young again. So, Peter, we've been doing some, um, some online programming with our students, you know, our New York students and our Rhode Island. And so I think one of the things that we've not stumbled on, but it's been really successful with the kids is in the power of visualization and, and visualization techniques and before we sort of delve into what we've been doing and you know it's scientifically proven and brain studies reveal that thoughts produce the same mental instructions as actions and mental imagery um, impacts like many cognitive processes in the brain you know motor control attention perception planning memory so the brain is getting trained for actual performance during visualization and sort of that's been almost like the foundation for a lot of the stuff that we've been doing over the last, um, you know, uh, eight weeks or however long. Do you want to maybe delve in? Yeah. Um, well, first, first of all, as experts, we all knew that in advance and created the programming around the visualization, obviously, and not stumbled in anywhere. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. <laughs> yeah, well, <you> know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but honestly, that was the, I think the thing that we did in the way we knew about visualization and we knew how important it was that, the programming we created was very much about specific areas of the court, types of movement, um, types of shots you're hitting, preparation, and just without a ball, without a racket, with a limited space, and try to still get a squash workout, whilst also putting yourself in position to learn more about your technique, where you're trying to hit the ball, how does it feel, which leg are you hitting off. And as we did it, it became very apparent the feedback from the players was, if I take your advice and visualize, I can really feel a huge improvement. And it became more and more clear that that visualization component was was so important in making these types of sessions work. So if someone's doing it in their basement with a four by four, uh, four by four space, and they can only take a couple of steps, if they can start to feel like, oh, I'm on the tee and I'm moving a couple of steps this way to volley, I'm moving onto the tee to go back to the back corner or whatever it is, that visualization um, aspect helped them feel like they were on court and then make sure they did all the, the movements and the preparation, the rotations and the, the, the squats and the lunges like they would on court because they're feeling and thinking they are on court. So that's been a, a really um, interesting thing to see from, from the players' own feedback and their perspective and how much they enjoyed it. Um, the other thing yeah. that's just been great is to see how committed the players have been and how much they've, how hard they've worked how much they've missed being with their friends socially. And, yeah. you know, as much as I'd like to say they miss me, but I think it's way more they've missed being with their friends and playing squash. And we're just a conduit to make that happen. 
and that they it's been just wonderful to see again the community aspect they all they all just want to be part of this great world that we're in which is squash yeah one of the major things i've i've kind of come to realize in this uh you know quarantine isolation life is just like how little you need to actually get healthier and stronger and be productive and and um i think maybe it's a product of new york a little peter but i i don't even i don't even quite think that because i was in a small town in carlisle pennsylvania and i i don't know i think a lot it's easy to hide behind like i need a i need a gym i need i need weights i need this i need that and um it's kind of cool to just have a bit of time and get back to the basics and uh realize how if you just prioritize you know doing a little bit every day how how much it adds up so i've been trying to communicate that with our with our players probably shouldn't have took 32 years to learn that but hey <laughs> <laughs> took me 47 <laughs> you're right though chris it's amazing how simple it is just to one of the reasons I started running regularly was just to get out and get some fresh air. And when I stopped playing squash competitively, the last thing I wanted to do was coach in the morning and then have a hit for my own sort of personal benefits and then coach again in the afternoon. I just liked the idea of getting away from sports, whether it's in a gym or weather is nice like it is at the moment and going outside for some fresh air. And I think it's so simple, even if you just go out for a 20-minute walk, 30-minute walk, it just feels nice. Like, yeah. 100%. I've actually been having a bit of fun cooking. I haven't cooked in years. And that's not true, Arthur. I remember your barbecue that you cooked me last year. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, i tell you what, yeah, tell a lie. Last <laughs> summer, every day after a day's teaching, out in the barbie, on the balcony, couple of beers, happy days. Hell, yeah. Actually, I need to get that bad boy out. Um, <laughs> but even at the minute, like we're cooking curries, we're cooking roasts. And all just courtesy of Google. Just Google how to make yeah. such and such. Follow the process. That how to Google, uh, how to boil an egg video on YouTube is great. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I tell you what, the toaster is the best. Put it in there. Yeah, happy days. All right, so guys, we're going to go into a, an interview that we did with Derek Ryan. Here we go. Joining us today uh, is former world number seven, Derek Ryan, who is the current physio for the PSA World Tour. You will often see him hanging around at the major events by the glass. Any injuries that happens to any of the players, he's straight there and he's looking after them. He's also the trainer to some of Ireland's top juniors, uh, including uh, Dennis Golevsky, who is a former British Junior Open champion, as well as some current pros, including the current world number two, who's also a form, former world number one and world champion, Ali Farag. Derek Ryan, thanks a million for joining us today. Good to see you, Arthur. Thanks for getting me on the podcast. It's wicked. How are you guys holding up? Holding up pretty good, all things uh, considered. Uh, it's been over 50 days now. I've been with the family, which is the longest I've ever been with my, my wife and three kids, because I'd normally be traveling down to Dublin to do a bit of work. I'm living in Belfast these last few years and uh, and then work with the PSA. I'd normally be traveling maybe every six, six weeks. Um, so it's been great spending time with the family. I assume, Derek, the feeling is mutual. I haven't asked my wife in case she gives me the wrong answer. So, um, but I keep telling her everything's great. <laughs> oh, man, lovely. And obviously, you know, you sort of mentioned and we talked already about you're the PSA physio. You do quite a lot of travel there and you're up and down from Belfast to Dublin. How have you adapted mm -hmm. to the current situation? Yeah, it's been a strange one. Um, I adapted pretty quickly because I, I was forced to 
because obviously you're, everyone's isolating from each other and the, the physiotherapy or the physical therapy went out the window really. And um, I still, still saw some people um, with video consultation, uh, which does work because you're able to guide them through a rehabilitation program and just manage their injuries. And then on the training front, on the strength and conditioning side of things, I, I went straight into yeah, video and doing classes and doing one-to-ones. Um, so it's worked and because I think it suits people as well because no one can really travel that far. Gyms are closed. So getting access uh, to those services um, dried up. But then there's a lot of great people doing great things online. So it's, uh, it's opened up a new avenue and uh, able to keep in contact with players, which, which is great. Um, I work with quite a few, you mentioned Ali, but I work with quite a few of the, the, the leading players. Obviously, they're based all over the world. Uh, a lot of them are in Egypt. So it's worked out quite well because you've been able to keep in contact and do some sessions live with them and, uh, and, and send them the program. And uh, that's worked out really, really well. And you mentioned about doing some of the sort of online work with some of your clients and one of the things that you've been doing and it seems from social media they've been pretty uh, successful and well attended is these online course tournaments you've been replicating through physical exertion uh, people are doing them in their backyards or in their in their kitchen in the bathroom whatever you've been kind of guiding through like four sessions over the course of three days replicating a tournament on the Irish tour talk us through a little bit about that yeah it was an idea I had you know, obviously, it's, we're still in season and everyone's missing the squash courts, everyone's missing tournaments. So I just had an idea to create four, basically four strength and conditioning circuit classes that were very squash specific and schedule them over a weekend. So a Friday evening, Saturday morning, Saturday evening, and then a Sunday, Sunday morning. And they are intense. One of the sessions out of the four is extremely intense. And by the end of the weekend, you're walking away from the four sessions as if physically you've played an event. That's uh, fatigue and, and exertion that uh, takes its toll on the body in a healthy way. It also brought, you know, squash community together as well, especially in, in Ireland and Europe. And people who would know each other signed up for it and they could see each other. Obviously, it's, it's via Zoom and they could see each other. So it's a bit of fun and crack as well before the session starts and when the session starts there's no crack there's no problem um, <laughs> so uh yeah it's 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 been tough i end up doing the sessions myself so um, everyone just follows my lead as such um so i've had to get in shape pretty quick because uh, i wasn't doing a hell of a lot before lockdown so they're intense but it, it, it also it keeps people their their body sort of in shape for when the courts do open again because you know, people are going to start moving around a squash court and it's all well and good doing bits and pieces of lunging and uh, ghosting here and there but the the, the actual multi-directional movements that we normally do on a squash court is hard to replicate on that note would you have any tips for for the club player at home that are absolutely chomping on the bit to get back on court and to get back playing and a bit of a danger of some of them getting injured getting hurt you know after the first or second hit have you any tips you can give that type of character the club player to sort of make sure that they do everything they can to prevent that injury from happening after day one? Yeah, definitely be very patient. And, it, and we have been so patient in this lockdown. With lockdown, we've had no choice. Um, when the courts open, what, what they're hoping to do in Ireland, it's not going to be till the end of June, but over here, and I know everywhere is different and places are opening up sooner. I know Switzerland has, has started to open up their courts uh, for solo practice and Paris practice from the same family, I think. But uh, I would, uh, a couple of things, I'd be looking at staying strong. And if you've never done gym work or strength 
and conditioning, start doing some basic uh, strength and conditioning. You don't even have to lift much weight, even your own body weight, but uh, making sure everything's activated and some mobility work. And that doesn't mean just stretching. The problem we have is, uh, especially with people who are working from home, they're probably sitting down more and more than they ever have. And um, our, our hips and our upper back get very, very stiff. So it's important to, uh, to do sort of some uh, mobility and activation exercises most days, but then three good sessions a week where you're doing uh, a decent strength and conditioning circuit, even if it's only body weight, that's head to toe, total body workouts, and just to make sure everything's maintained. Um, uh, you know, I read something recently that was quite interesting. We're, we're in quarantine and just make sure we don't put our bodies in quarantine or our tendons, muscles, joints, ligaments in quarantine as well. Because when those courts open, we're going to be really, really excited to be able to spin the racket and actually start playing some sets. And I actually think that's a, a big mistake. And um, we want to ease into it and um, easy routines, easy hitting, and get a week underneath your belt where you've got your body has adapted again and you've got used to those multi-directional movements and the deceleration acceleration that that really does overload our bodies with squash in a good healthy way but our bodies need to be adapted for it and conditioned for it so that's the the big worry if you've if you haven't done much in lockdown and then you expect your body to uh, be raring to go and uh, you're you're going to be in for a big shock um, so yeah last one really kind of interested to see how you're managing how you how Ali Farag is managing in this pandemic and, and how you're kind of managing managing his schedule at the minute yeah it's um things changed because of you know the players thought they could get back into tournaments in August and it's not looking like August now for obvious reasons so it's very very tough for the guys to have goals because everything's been pushed out so far down the line so it's all about maintenance for the likes of Ali and, and, and the rest of the, the, the guys and the girls so he's been very very focused as you would imagine being the player he is and he's got a, a, a great trainer over there uh, called Hassan who um, although they have to isolate he's on his toes the whole time and uh, pushing him and I send over programs and Hassan looks after him as well the the motivation is tough so like like for for everyone and it's hard to keep the intensity up but um, as long as the players are maintaining and that's what they are doing it's also tough for the for the Egyptians at the minute because it's Ramadan, uh, their holy month. So they have 30 days of uh, fasting all day, so they can't even have a drink of water during uh, during sunlight. So they have to wait for sundown, um, and then they they're able to eat. So it's actually tough to train during those 30 days. It's hard to do two sessions, for example. So they generally just do one session um, just before they start eating. So sundown is about 6:30, 6:40 p.m. over there. So they might do a session in there before that, and then they're straight in lorrying the food into <laughs> yeah it must be super tough yeah it's it, it is tough but it's also an opportunity because players have never had this volume of time to actually train uh, because we've yeah. always got commitments and tournaments that get in the way and unfortunately niggles and injuries from from playing so it's an opportunity to work on your weaknesses and, and if that's strength or if that's power if that's movement and if that's um, the mental aspect of the game and if it's endurance you've got an incredible opportunity to work your endurance and uh, and increase any facets um, physical and mental assets of the game because you've got no, nothing to interfere from a schedule of commitments uh, from playing tournaments etc so players should be looking to take these opportunities to actually look for games 
that's what I, where I would get my motivation from it. And that's where a lot of the top players are looking at it as well. They they know uh, where they they can get gains. They know where their weaknesses are, and they're working on them. Yeah, I mean that's brilliant. I mean that's obviously why the top players are where they, where they are. You can see you're obviously using this as an opportunity to to explore different ways to teach to maybe bring your worlds together and your your world smaller. That's true. I totally, totally agree. Well, Derek, thanks a million for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Brilliant. If you want more information on Derek's tournaments from home, you can check it out at squashfitness.co.uk. So, uh, Peter, interesting to hear Derek's uh, Derek listen, uh, talking about Alex Farag and how he's managing his training schedule. But I'd be interested, and I'm sure a lot of us would be, what would a 24-year-old Peter Nicol with blonde highlights, how would he tackle the, the current situation? You know, what would your mindset have been back then? I would have loved it. Back then, I would have thought about it as the biggest opportunity to get to improve as much as I can and to get as physically fit as I possibly could. I'd literally be like, right, let's get into this. and let's, I'll plan for six months, and if it lasts longer, great. If it lasts less, then I'm ready either way. And I think, I mean, I would have gone into a head first and just brutal, been brutal, but no interest in doing anything like it now or even thinking about it but at the time i would i honestly i honestly would have loved it it would have been like heaven for me very inspiring thing for any young aspiring squash players that are listening to it. you got to take the positives from it right so there's like there's all this it's a terrible situation there's all these terrible things happening but at the same time you have to look for positives for yourself and like what would be the positive as a professional squash player you know you and again, I was so singular back then. I didn't have any friends, really. <laughs> I didn't speak to anyone. Nothing wrong with that, Pierre. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Um, I, I, you mean, it was like I was so focused on being the best sports player I could be. So if that was my focus, then I would have just gone all two feet into it, like just jumped in and, and gone for it. So I'd have got the best information I possibly could. I would have loved to know, like with all the information we have now as well, like, like we were saying, all the different resources that are going on right now, I would have been doing, I mean, if Jonathan Power, for example, had been laying out what he was doing, I'd have done the sessions that he was doing. You know, I'd have tried absolutely everything that was out there alongside doing my own stuff um, to learn, absorb as much information as possible because there would have been nothing else to do, right? Um, and it would be this amazing opportunity to learn and to grow in a tough situation. How do you think you would have coped with the uncertainty of when the SA will be back on tour? Because I think... Initially, it seemed like everyone did what you're saying. They jumped straight in and there was a lot of excitement. This is a great opportunity, but it seems like the longer it draws on and the more and more people don't quite know when the, the end is going to be, it's becoming harder and harder to maintain motivation. So how do you think you would have coped with that challenge? Well, I think if first of all, I would have probably, I, I feel personally like I do now, I would have realized that it was going to be longer than people expected anyway. There was no way it was going to be two months and then back to playing in my mind. It was going to be six months to a year anyway, um, realistically. So I think, first of all, my mindset would have been for a longer term, which it was anyway. I was always thinking more longer term, which is why some individual performances still upset me because <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't prepared for those individual performances. I was thinking more about being better over the long term. So my mindset and my general mindset would have been fine for this, I think, because I would have thought about it in a different way. But I also would have made sure that it was a times off in the middle to take complete breaks, to rest and recover, then push again. So I'd have broken it up into very much like completely starting from scratch. So we're going to do endurance and we're going to do complete reconstruction of swing, movement and understanding what's right and wrong to a point. 
see where we're at, have a break, and then do it again. You know what I mean? I would try and think of it that way. So it's not just going, great, we have some time, I'm going to work hard. There has to be a process to it. There has to be an understanding of what you're trying to achieve. And yeah, if you just go and work hard for four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, and you don't know what you're really doing, you're just working hard, and there's no actual specific goals you're setting, then of course you're going to get bored, and of course you're going to struggle to have motivation. So again, I think thinking and knowing why you're doing something, putting that in place, seeing if it's working, and then resetting. I just turned back into the old me. I turned back into the old harsh squash player me. They don't <laughs> what, know what they're what did, doing. What did I say they there? No Blacked idea. out. <laughs> yeah, I know. it does feel a bit like that. Jeez. One of the, one of the things I found interesting was um, a lot of boxers, and probably similar with you know mixed martial arts people, were almost like they looked excited by it, right? Because that's when they do their best work when they go into that isolation, you know, four or whatever weeks out from a fight and they just them and their trainer and they just go somewhere where they have no family and friends. And I saw that from a few boxers kind of say, okay, it's time to, time to go to work now. Sounds like that would be your mentality too, Peter. Like, again, Chris, that tends to be working towards a very fixed endpoint where there's a goal of this fight, this opponent. Like I say, what I've seen is that, People started off with that mentality, but as it drags on and there is no fixed endpoint or no goal in sight, it's becoming harder and harder to maintain that motivation to keep training hard every day. I think that's the hard part. Like you're kind of getting ready for a day and it's like, and then you get ready for the next one. Yeah, I, I think it's I just, hard, but I just don't see, I, I, I really sorry, struggle with people not thinking about their self-improvement over specific end goals. If there was no, there is no real time for something to happen. If there's no real time for something to be ended or, or to be finished, or even just in life in general, improve yourself as much as you can and work on your own goals and your own endpoints to understand if you've improved. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's a result because you can't always control a result, right? I could play Chris tomorrow, having trained perfectly, and Chris could play the best game of his life and beat me. But I might have played it exceptionally well and done exactly what I've done, right? And this, that's no fault of what I'm doing. So I, I think I encourage all the pro players and, and people, is not to think about the end being of playing a tournament again and getting back out there and doing it, but actually just improving themselves and doing every aspect of their game, improving every aspect they can forever. You know, it's going to give them more insight into themselves. They're going to be fitter. They're going to be stronger. They're going to be more flexible. They're going to understand certain things more. They're going to have a better diet. They're going to have blah, 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 and keep going. You know what I mean? So it's much more about self-improvement over the end goal of winning something. And within, with, I, blacked, within, I blacked out again. Within that, <laughs> within that, I think there was a really important message to, you know, all my future opponents that you can't measure your success based on your result against me because you're going to be disappointed every time. <laughs> I mean, that was important to oh, know. Oh, Chris, now I'm ready to play here. I'm looking at me, I'm stretching. I'm stretching. <laughs> cool. It's funny, Peter, you're kind of echoing a, a, strong message that came, comes through a book written by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way and he has all these anecdotes written from various not just sports people but also entrepreneurs or business people who anytime a crisis came about be a financial crisis bubonic plague and what have you anyone who is successful isn't drowning their sorrows in the situation that they find themselves in but echoed what you said Peter about this is an opportunity for you to better yourself to come out of this, the challenge for you as an individual, be a squash player, a business person, whatever, you come in this one way, but you challenge yourself to come out of it better. 
yeah, my most enjoyable period in the last nine weeks, the most enjoyable part of it for me, like a team and business perspective, is basically how we've all approached it, right? So we all work together on a regular basis and we've all approached it, right? What can we do? Where we look, where can we, we add value? Where can we adapt things? How can we make this work? And I think all of us have had that mindset all the way through this process. And that has been really, it's been great from a motivational sense for me personally, because it constantly challenges me to think about in exactly the same way and everything you've mentioned there. So, yeah. One of the things you'll see at the end of this is the, the kids and not just junior players, but also PSA players that are really process driven, like Peter's talking about. They're, I think, the ones that are going to have excelled coming out of this because they're going to have retain motivation whereas if you're competition driven or outcome orientated it's going to be really challenging to maintain that if you're only interested in beating someone because really you have no opportunity to compete or to play someone and you're going to eventually just get a little bit disheartened and, and lose that and on that note we'll go into a, we had a, an interview with one of the young up-and-coming u.s uh, squash players olivia fichter she's current world number 34 She's one of Peter's protégés, and uh, it'd be interesting to hear what she has to say. Olivia, thanks for joining us. We're delighted to have you. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good, Arthur. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to to be to be on here and doing this. Yeah, but uh, hanging in there. Um, healthy, so can't complain. Um, here with my family in Philadelphia, so it's been it's been nice spending time with them. And yeah, happy doing days. Well. How about you? Yep, similar. Just um, just hanging in, just one day at a time and kind of keeping as busy and as productive as I can. So you mentioned your home in Philadelphia. Um, you've had a pretty solid um, second season, albeit it wasn't a full season. And just throwing Philly in there, just talk a little bit about the US Open on home soil, not just from a national standpoint, but you grew up not that far away from where the, where the courts were. And talked an really impressive win against Emily Whitlock, who is sort of 20 in the world, give or take. And backing that up with pretty impressive performance against Amanda Sovi. I know certainly you know you had it was one all. You had a, a good lead in the third, and I'm sure there's still a part of you that me bringing that up and seeing your facial expression, it still brings up a, a little bit of a wound. But I I'm sure or I'll, I'll let you answer this. But it, from the outside looking in, like you must take great confidence in knowing that in only your second full season, not only have you had already an, an impressive win against a top 10 player, but you've also almost got another one in there. And it sort of shows that, you know, your level is, is there, thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the U S open was uh, an awesome event um, this year for me. It, I think I, I came into the season, I had an injury at the end of the summer and I felt like had a, had a slow start in um, my, my first tournament was in France. I wasn't very happy with how I played. And so it was nice to kind of come into the U.S. Open on home soil. So, you know, playing at that event is always, you know, really meaningful and really special. And this was actually the U.S. Open this year is my first time ever playing on the glass court at a major event on uh, on squash TV. So I vividly remember going on against Emily and, and feeling the nerves. Um, the first few rallies were a little shaky. But yeah, I mean, it was incredible. My parents were there. Uh, my boyfriend came in. And uh, most importantly, Peter and Nickel, my coach, and his wife, Jess, um, they came in. They Ubered from New York to come watch me play, which was incredible. <laughs> they Ubered. 
<laughs> there was a little issue with the, uh, they couldn't find the keys to the car. So it was a last minute panic. Uh, but uh, yeah, fortunately they made it. And um, yeah, it was, I, I remember being really, really happy with how I, how I played and my performance in that match. Um, we had done a lot of prep before that and watched a lot of tape on Emily. And yeah, I felt like I went in with a good game plan. And um, when I think about that match, I was really happy with, cause I actually, I won the first, which was tight, but then she came out firing and, and won the second decisively. So I actually had to change my game plan a bit going into the third and fourth. And um, I was really pleased with how I was able to make those necessary adjustments and, um, and get the win. So yeah, that was a huge, huge win for me and um yeah and you yeah. finished just just um like you finished it like the third and fourth game was was super impressive and like you say you you made a couple of little adjustments and huge uh reward on there because it was like 11 3 11 4 um what little changes did you make yeah well so we we kind of noticed when we were watching the tapes uh that she was pretty lethal on the forehand if you left her anything she was quite attacking on that side but on the backhand she she wasn't quite as aggressive. So if you, you hit, you know, good, good depth um, to on the left-hand side, you could kind of get her into a rhythm of moving back and get in front of her. So yep. my goal was just to sort of keep her in that backcourt and just to get in front of her and then use my volley to, to move her and, and stay in front of her and then use the front half of the court. But then I think she started reading, reading that and it became a little too predictable. So she started cutting off my rails because obviously if they weren't perfect, she was all over it. So then all of a sudden in that second game, she was in front of me more. And, um, she, you know, she obviously has great skill. And so she was taking it in and putting me under all the pressure. Yeah. So I remember after that game, Peter was just like, it's way too predictable right now. You just have to, you have to change it up a little more, throw in some more variation, turn her and keep her guessing. And so I picked up, I remember I picked up the pace a bit. Yeah, just didn't play quite as straight. Just added a few more angles in there. And then all of a sudden, when I was hitting straight, it was that much more effective. And yeah, then we able, was able to get back on that tee and in front of her. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, you know, and for any, anyone outside of America listening to this, rail is a length, it's a drive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the redrop is the counter drop. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's brilliant. I, I mean, what what a what a cool way to to start your season. But just to have that network of support, your coach, your your boyfriend, your your family around, your home turf, it must have been amazing. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, yeah, and had had a lot of family friends come out um, to support. So I mean, you couldn't ask for. I mean, especially it was my first time on PSA Squash TV, and so so hype. And I was almost trying to like keep myself calm beforehand because I just wanted to get out there and play on that court so badly um so managing you know nerves and excitement and it was yeah it was exciting and stressful but I'm, I'm happy I was able to get the job done and then obviously that match against Amanda was was a tough one I uh she's a very good friend of mine and you know we room together at most at most events on the road and so it's always it can be it can be hard playing your friends but I had known that she was struggling with a bit of an injury I remember Peter was like, don't think about it. Just play the way you'd play regardless. Yeah. And I mean, when you're out there, I mean, it's hard not to want to like test your opponent and, and move them forward if you know they're struggling physically. And so I think because of that tactically, I just didn't 
didn't play the way um, the way I should have. Um, but it, yeah, it was, a, it was a close match, and I felt like I had her in that third. Um, but I mean, credit to her, she fought back really well and made a really impressive comeback. And yeah, it was it was a heartbreaker. And I remember a lot of people afterwards saying, "You you almost you know you had a close match with Amanda. Congrats! You must be so proud of yourself." And of course, I was just upset, devastated. You know, I thought I had it. It's it, it was a it was a very memorable match and one I learned a lot from. But yeah, there was just so many sways and momentum in that match, and it just shows you how squash is just things can change so quickly. So yeah, big time. Yeah, and so we saw you in your first full season in Rhode Island, and it was super impressive just to watch you play. I think I mentioned just before we started recording, but you looked like someone who had the whole package. You had it all together in terms of how you carried yourself and you dealt with like difficult situations, a tough first round, a really difficult and unbelievable match against a former Princeton uh, teammate in Nicole, getting through that and then backing up mentally and physically to win the final in three. That must have been kind of a good buzz, a good feeling, you know, knowing that you'd just begun your squash journey to get that first tournament under the belt. Yeah, I think it was it was such an interesting time because I had just I mean that was that tournament was early November and I my first season on tour just started in September and I felt like I was making so many changes to my game. Um, yeah. you know, physically I was getting stronger and working on different things. I was changing my movement, I was changing my technique. Um, we were making a ton of changes. And so, yeah, I just remember that week um I felt like a couple of things Peter and I had had worked on really came together and um, kind of the hard work I'd been doing had paid off. And yeah, it was really exciting. That match against Nicole was crazy. Uh, playing with her is always fun and it's always friendly, but really competitive. And yeah, that was, that was a crazy one. I think, what was it? 15, 13 in the fifth or something. Yeah. It was, yeah. And the fourth was like super close as well couple of match balls down but like a lot of members of the club and the Rhode Island squash community still bring it up and since then they've followed both of your progress on the PSA and oh did you see so and so got the result against such and such including your big win against Emily in the US Open and actually a win against Tedney Evans a few people got a bit of a kick out of it oh yeah look she started her uh, her tour here type of thing <laughs> oh, that's awesome yeah that was such a great event and you guys have such an awesome program going on there with such great members so that was an awesome place to to get my first title so yeah and and you know Peter's come up a couple of times how did that come about how did you like did you headhunt him or vice versa or did it kind of happen super organically in terms of coach student relationship yeah so if you had told me three years ago that Peter Nickel was going to be my coach I mean I would have told you you're crazy I actually had a uh I had a poster a prince poster of Peter on my wall in my room growing up. Like so I weird. Do you want me to cut that piece? So, so weird. That? Yes. <laughs> yeah. His wife, Jess, is always like, that's so creepy, Liv. Like, you need to stop playing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I mean, I, I mean, I saw Peter play when he was younger, and obviously he was such a, he's such a legend in the game. But um, no, I had no relation to him outside of the fact that, so when I was, when I decided I wanted to go pro my senior year, I remember having a conversation with the men's coach at Princeton, Sean Wilkinson, who happens to be um, Bodie, Peter's son's godfather. 
And so I was trying to figure out where I wanted to base myself, where I wanted to be. I assumed I'd probably end up in, in Philly back at home um, just for, you know, practicality reasons. But he said, you know what, I'm going to New York tomorrow and I'm having coffee with my old friend, Peter Nickel. Why don't you come along and we can talk to him about um, maybe you possibly working with him. And I was like, sign me up. So yeah, we took a train in and we all got coffee. And I just remember we totally hit it off. And yeah, basically at the end of it, he was like, well, um, I'm not going to commit to anything, but why don't we get on court next week? And then the following week we got on court and just had such great chemistry on court. And he was so amazing. And I mean, the, the crazy thing about working with Peter is just every session, I feel like I learned so much. Yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's like a groundbreaking realization. I come I, every time I work with him and so and he's just so supportive and he just has no ego which I feel like if anyone's going to have an ego it could be Peter Nickel but he's just so he's been so supportive and encouraging and I'm someone who definitely overthinks a lot on court and I'm very hard on myself and he's just been one of the best pieces of, of pieces of advice he's given me is just when I'm on court especially when I'm competing like I have to be my own best friend Otherwise, you know, it's just, it's too brutal out there when you're out in, in the middle of battle. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's just been such a privilege working with him and Jess, who's been incredibly supportive as well. Yeah, they're, they're great people. And Peter's an unbelievable uh, coach. I remember just certain stages in my own career, he'd given me a hand uh, with my game. And he's a super inspiring guy. He's a great guy as well. Yeah. So, like with the way things are and your season coming to you and unusual end, how have you stayed motivated and connected with your coach, Peter? And then, you know, what sort of goals have you reset for the upcoming season? No, I mean, it's obviously such it's an unpre unprecedented situation. Um, and I remember when this whole thing started, I remember being like, God, I mean, if I had the feeling that, you know, the British wasn't going to happen. We weren't going to be playing events until September. So it's such a long off season, obviously. And normally you're used to having June, July and August to, to do your off season training. But I found what was so important was to set kind of short term goals. So just just little physical goals like. I want to be able to do a proper, like, you know, 20, 30 proper push-ups by the end of this week. Or, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough. I've been in Connecticut a bit at my boyfriend's family's house. They have a Peloton, which I'm obsessed with. I love Peloton. <laughs> and just, you know, constantly setting goals for myself on, like, output and power averages and sessions. Um, so I'm trying to give myself, you know, numbers to hit in all of these sessions that I can work towards. Fortunately, I mean, it's been amazing. I've still been able to do sessions with Peter. Um, we've been doing, we've been working a lot on my movement because I mean, if not now, then when? I mean, it's such a good time to, to break down my movement just to become that much more efficient and yeah. um, intentional with my movement. And so we've been really breaking it down and doing a lot of Zoom sessions. And um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I was thinking when we first did our first Zoom session, I'm like, all right, is he really going to be able to, to pick up on, on the, the nuances of this? And then meanwhile, I'm going and he's like, nope, turn your foot, your toes, you know, <laughs> 42 degrees. It needs to be at 60 degrees. And I'm like, God, he's, yeah, for an old guy, he's got a good eye. Yeah, those contacts. You might have to remove that from this. 
anyway, but yeah, it's been, it's been, obviously it's, it's tough to stay motivated, but what I've just been telling myself is, is, you know, Olympians, they, they train for four years for one event. And so Mm. kind of adopting a similar mindset and just being, I was just talking to Peter about how important it is to stay um, rather than outcome driven, being really process driven and just focusing on the day to day. Um, you know, it's really important for me to kind of make plans, plan out my sessions by one to two to three week blocks. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, I feel like if I don't have a plan, it's just it's easy to let the day kind of run away from you. Totally. And so, yeah, that's what I've been up to. It's been fun, though. I mean, I've been doing a lot of cross training. I've been doing some boxing. I, uh, I've never liked running, but um, I'm starting to hate it less. I've been working on it. Um, so yeah, it's it's good. It's been a good opportunity to kind of challenge myself in new ways and focus on different things. And yeah, there have been a lot of positives coming out of it. So yeah, amazing. A great approach to um, to the way that things are at the minute. Olivia, listen, thanks again so much for joining us. We're we're super uh, appreciative and grateful that you agreed to do this uh, our first show, and uh, we wish you all the best over the coming weeks and look forward to watching you back on squeeze court again in the near future yes thanks arthur this is fun awesome for having me thanks again olivia that was awesome if you would like to follow olivia's progress on the tour you can catch her on her instagram account olivia victor and twitter account olivia victor one she has also been posting some some of her quarantine workouts so if you're looking for a bit of inspiration or some ideas there you go. Uh, Peter, you work with Olivia um, and she touched a little bit on sort of your relationship and how you guys have been uh, connecting, communicating over the last uh, number of weeks. Um, from your perspective as her coach, how's it been going? I think it's been going well. I think going back to what Stuart was saying, she's very process driven. You know, she had a, a tough college career where her back was a, a problem and she had to go through a lot of um, uh, rehab and, and, and prehab and making sure she was fit for purpose. So I think she's she's built in a way that she, she works from that process-driven mindset, which is super helpful um, in this way. And from the very start of this, we talked about, okay, so let's go back to basics and work on, on a certain aspect of your game that you need to start, not to start from scratch, but certainly like from almost the beginning. And that was very much movement-based. And we're going to go we're going to go through this movement and she is a self-motivator she's process driven she sometimes thinks too much because she's so keen on getting better and she'll come up with seven or eight things that she needs to work on when maybe just keeping it simple and doing one or two would be would be much more beneficial but it just shows her passion and her commitment to wanting to be better so i have no doubt that at the end of this she'll come out of this incredibly strong um and then i think she has the potential to go as far as she wants to Yep, hard to disagree with you there, Peter. Okay, on that note, we will wrap things up. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Stuart. For everyone who listened, thank you. If you enjoyed what you heard, please spread the word, share with your friends, etc. And we look forward to bringing you more content in the near future. For any more information on our virtual academy, you can check us out online at nickelsquash-virtualacademy.com. Nice one, everyone. Have a great one. Happy days. Cheers.